Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So, let's get started. So, today we're doing our August Patreon Q&As. We don't have too many questions for this month, so we're also going to pull in a little bit about your experience at ICE, the International Congress of Egyptologists, annual meeting. I guess it's every four years, right? Yep, every four years. Um, Last, four years ago, it was in Cairo, and this year was in Leiden. So I, I did yeah. not attend, so I'm looking forward to hear your thoughts on the Congress. And so we'll touch a bit up on that and do the Patreon questions for this for this month. Okay. okay. All right, so let's get started. Okay, so our first question is from Isabel, and they ask, Carrie has answered this question before when she was interviewed by Dominic from the History of Egypt podcast, but Jordan and Amber, if you could answer it, if there's one thing, one question that you could answer about Egypt with complete certitude, what would it be? Kara, you can revisit too, of course. I'm always fascinated by the breadth of the answers to this question. Amber, you're involved in this too, so I can't remember what my answer was, so... Sorry, oh, Isabel. You can start. You can something have a new I answer. To know, yeah. So if you could answer anything with certainty, you absolutely need to know. If you're able to go back in time and determine something with absolute certainty, what would it be? It smelled. <laughs> you want to know you what it smelled know like? It smelled. <laughs> I want to what even it smelled. I know you don't want to know chronology or like how long did the king actually reign or. What happened? I think I'm going to have to go with probably a really stereotypical answer of what happened post-Tut or post-Akhenaten, pre-Tut. Did Nefertiti reign? Did one of his daughters reign? All that shenanigans. I'm, I want to know the answer to because I'm tired of hearing about it maybe so that if we have the answer, then it's done. Oh, I thought I, I misunderstood the question. I, she's asking if there was one thing that you could answer about Egypt with complete certitude, what it yeah. would be. yeah. Yeah, so ancient, I want to know what happened after Akhenaten died. So is this, is it in theory, if you could know? Or yeah, yes. The knowledge that we have, what can we say? with like What perplexing questions about ancient Egypt that we currently can't answer? But if you could, what would you want to know the answer to? I'm giving you a time machine, Amber. You use it as well to answer this question. Everybody goes for the Amarna period. I know. That's why I said it's really lame, but I do want to know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think you can make me choose. You're going to have to just throw me back there and I learn what I learn. Okay, I'll give a new answer. Okay, which go is, for it. Well, I'll be there when the Great Pyramid is built. And we'll, I was we'll thinking go. about the pyramid. Yeah, oh. I like the saying because we can't take it apart. I suppose one could, which is the only way we would ever be able to reconstruct how they built it. But one will not do that because it would be deconstructing one of the greatest wonders of the world. So I would, I would honestly like to like also see how some of those like colossal statues of Amenhotep III or Ramses, like how some of those were carved, like the intricacies of some of the carving and moving those things around just to see the whole process. I would love like, that. I would and like love a king's funeral a, or something too. A hard stone statue, mm -hmm. how they carved it with such precision. Yeah. They, they have a guy like sprinkling sand as they're using yeah. the copper chisel. And, yeah. 
what else would be cool to you know you want to be a servant at court and be able to see what court was actually like yeah like maybe ramsey's the third assassination like what happened exactly for that some of these like intermediate periods where you have people co-rolling in different dynasties how exactly did those line up why didn't Harry Horse's son become king and Peneja's mm-hmm. son became, or Pionk's son, Peneja, became king instead? What yeah. the hell is going on? These transfers it's, of power can be. It's 21st, 20th to 21st dynasty for those of you that aren't in yeah. the um, late 20. Yeah. So I think a lot of transfers of power would be interesting to see the exact play by play overall. And I think seeing an annual, like a good old school inundation would be cool too, pre dam and, and all that. Wonderful. And seeing how, this is a little creepy, and I don't actually want to witness it firsthand. Mummification? No, incest. What was it like to marry your sister? Like, how did that work? Did they, were they all lovey-dovey? Was it expected? And this would either be for like the beginning of the 18th dynasty or the Ptolemaic dynasty. How did this Mm -hmm. actually function? And hanging out as an enslaved person in the Ptolemaic bedchamber, I think would be pretty damn interesting. Oh, yeah. I just don't want to be taken out as collateral damage as everyone's trying to poison each other. I think if you revisit our one episode about five debates that would get Egyptologists into a fist fight, I think any of the, an- the actual answer to any of those questions would be there's so many questions people ask us. And if we don't have the evidence, we can't answer those, any of those. That's, all, that's a fun question. I wonder what you answered for Dominic's podcast. We'll have to go check and see what you said. I think it was what drove Akhenaten's religious changes. That's, uh, yeah. I think getting into it, the mind of any yeah. individual would be interesting. And mm-hmm. how it worked and why. And was it an organic movement mm-hmm. of, of him and enthusiastic courtiers? Or was it just him? Did he have to fight against people? How did this work? I'd love to get to some of those answers. I think that's what I answered. If not, it was the aftermath of the Amarna regime as well, probably. Which is annoying. But yeah. No, but we all want to know. We all want to know. To know. Okay. That's a great question. Thanks, Isabel. Brian has a more overarching question, but I think we can chat about it for a little bit. So, looking at an examination of the satires of the trade. So, I've actually never read it from the original, I've only read it in translation. But can you give a little overview to our listeners about what is the satires of the trade? Who's the audience? What's the rhetorical strategy involved? And then, yeah, any general thoughts you have on it? So the satire of the trades is the term that Egyptologists have given to this particular instruction written in Middle Egyptian, perhaps dating to the Middle Kingdom, though I think some have recently redated it later, but this is not my my jam. The official title, according to what the Egyptians gave it, is the teaching made by the man of Charu called Dua Keti for his son called Pepi. Not a scintillating title to be sure, so Egyptologists have renamed it Satire of the Trades. And essentially it's, it's written in Middle Egyptian, classical Egyptian dating to 12th to 18th dynasty, 11th to 18th dynasty. And it's talking about all of these different professions that one can have. And there's this discussion about whether the word satire is appropriate or or not. It's probably not. Essentially, it's just this brutalized version of what it means to be 
a shoemaker, sandal maker, what it means to be a craftsman of stature, uh-huh. it means to be a farmer, non versus what it means to be a scribe. And a scribe gets all the good stuff. He gets all the connections, access to all the important people. He is an important person. He gets to sit down while everyone's toiling. And it's a patriarchal comparison, an exhortation that one needs to study hard. Hieroglyphic texts are not easy to learn and to learn to read and write. And they will also enter the scribal class. So it is a document, a text talking about social separation, how one maintains it and what the rest of society has to deal with. It's a very stark patriarchal expose in many ways. It's when you're talking, fight the man. Who's the man? The Egyptians are telling us the man is the scribe and you better become one of them or you will be exploited and your life will suck. And here's how. So. It's it's a super interesting text. It's essentially like the dad telling his son, stop complaining and focus on your schoolwork because you could have a way worse existence. And then goes through and tells you all the different jobs. I'll read an example of one that I feel like is particularly compelling. I do not see a sculptor on a mission or a goldsmith on the task of being dispatched, but I see the coppersmith at his toil. At the mouth of his furnace, his fingers like crocodile skin, his stench worse than fish eggs. So better to be a scribe and sitting all day writing because you could have hands like crocodile skin and smell really bad if you're a coppersmith or it goes through all these different, the jeweler, the barber, the reed cutter, the potter, the bricklayer, the carpenter, the gardener field laborer, the weave mat weaver, the weapon maker, the trader. So it goes through all of those and says, maybe you think the grass is greener, but these jobs are all much more difficult and toiling. Can you read the trader really fast? Can you read that section? Because out of all of them, I'm trying to think of like the professions that would lure you. No one wants to be a bricklayer if they're the son of an elite. It's not, oh my God, I want to be a bricklayer when I grow up. Yeah, you could not do your studies and learn enough and so not be able to be, become anything but a bricklayer. It is, I think that's the fear mongering that's mm-hmm. happening here. But becoming a shooty or a merchant mm-hmm. is something I can imagine would lure an elite son because it's, an, it's a way of getting more power, prestige, money outright. But what, how do they make it negative in this text? So they have the trader goes out to the hill land after bequeathing his goods to his children, fearful of lions and Asiatics. He recognizes himself again when he is in Egypt. He reaches his home in the evening and the traveling has broken him in two. His house is is of cloth for bricks. It's a tent. Without experiencing any pleasure. So he's traveling all the time in not in Egypt, always the whole issue of leaving Egypt. Never being home. I saw George Clooney's up in the air. I get it. I know what it likes to always be away. Yeah. Yeah. My whole thing is, so I guess we could talk about quickly satire, us, our naming of it as a satire. And then, yeah, who's the audience? Who would this literature have been for originally? And how is it used today by Egyptologists? A lot of people use it to look at these trades in general. 
Yeah. It's like looking at a law code telling you not to do something to understand that those things were actually done. If you have a law code that's saying do not fornicate with a man, then you know that kind of activity was actually happening. And that's in some versions of the negative confession. So you're like, mm-hmm. oh, hey, there is homosexual behavior happening in ancient Egypt. And so you can use it from that perspective, even though it's presented in a very negative way. So you can look at this satire of the trades. And I think you can and say, okay, this is what, because it's very evocative. It's full of local color. It's full of real in the weeds descriptions of what the mud was like for the bricklayer, or how the leather tanning chemicals, the urine they would have to use, mm-hmm. soften the leather and things like, I'm not a tanner, I don't know. But how these things stunk and how the person would then stink. It gives you more material, physical, corporeal understanding of what these different trades would have been than anything else. Certainly more arguably than a depiction of a sandal maker on a tomb wall in a more idealized. So from that perspective, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh my God, it's so negatively depicted. It's not useful at all. I think that there's something to this. Can you read, can you find the Potter section? I was just going to read out the end of it and it goes, look, there is no profession free of directors except the scribe. He is the director. If you know how to write, your life is better than all of these other professions. And then it goes on to list all the positive things about being a scribe. Yeah. You Um, want to be your own boss. mm -hmm. This is the only way to do it. You want to have somebody constantly telling you what to do and how to do it. Then you're, if you're doing any of these other things, then you're just, you just Scrooge. I think the merchant, he doesn't quite, he, he, he has to work with rich people. And of course, scribes have to work with their Mm -hmm. bosses. There is no such thing as a scribe without a boss. And he's going to have to constantly deal with that bureaucracy, that hierarchy of other scribes. But it's, uh, it's interesting the way it's sold. I think that we're clever enough to be able to read through, read between the lines and understand that this is an apologist text in favor of one particular profession. But I think we also, being a part of a patriarchal capitalist society, understand that this is the management bureaucratic class and that there are reasons why one would want their children or themselves to be in this managerial class Mm -hmm. and what that means in a system, any human system that's more complex. This gets lumped in with literature, right? With these compendiums of ancient Egyptian literature but how do you actually think this text was consumed? I don't think of it as literature in our sense. No one's like sitting around like reading this as to spend the free time. Do you think these were things that maybe when a scribe was learning to write, they would come and copy this down? It's a kind of funny, satirical thing to remind themselves of how lucky they are to get to be a scribe. Or was it sung or told in school? Or yeah, how, how do you think these, how are these functioning? I think we understand this text in our bones. I think this text is more us than anything. It makes more sense to me than anything else. So what who's the audience? It's people who can read and write, which is limited to 5% or less of the Egyptian population. And if you want the demographics of who could read and write, there's an article by Baines and Lakovara. You can look that Mm -hmm. up. We can add that in the show notes and you can get an idea of what we're talking about. And there's much disagreement there and there's no actual way to know, but it's a very small percentage of society. And you could claim that this text was being used as a scribal tool, as a teaching text. There's no way to prove it. 
It also doesn't need to be just that. It can be a text that is a way of separating yourself from others. It's a social separator. It's reinforcing those yes. hierarchies. I would compare it in some ways to like the Harvard sweatshirt or the mm-hmm. songs that you sing or the scarf you put around your neck to say, I belong to this elite social class and you do not. I know these songs and this shibboleth, this particular password to get into this or that club, or I have access that you don't have. So there's, and there's many Egyptologists who have looked at the codes of this as a social separator, but it's possible that more work could be done from that perspective, not just, oh, this is Egyptian society laid out from the scribal perspective, but this is a way to create scapegoats. It's a way to create the other. It's so like today we might have, didn't a country music song just come out about, what is it called? There's one that's just wouldn't happen in a small country. Town. Yeah. Yeah. That's and the so, one I was thinking of. And they're talking about all the bad things that are, if, yeah, someone could look it up. Mm-hmm. All the bad things that could happen or do happen in cities that would never happen in a country town. Oh, try that in a small town. Try that in a small town. So you've got transgenderism and sexual proclivities, freedom, violence, people of other colors, immigrants, homelessness, but people choosing just to be general assholes in a city environment versus a small town. And there's no truth to this. And everyone listening to this song knows that people in small towns can be assholes just like they are in cities, that there can be murders, that there can be homelessness, that all Mm -hmm. of these things can be there, that my God, people might even take welfare in one of these small towns. But the song itself is putting people into certain camps so they know we belong here in this polarized reality and those people are different. So it gives you an understanding that there's a fractioning within society in which people feel they need to maintain this social separation lest they become too connected. What's interesting to me, as you mentioned initially with the law idea, so if there's a law that means people were doing it, if there needs to be a text like this telling everyone how awesome being a scribe is, then they're a some type of idyllic or all the young men idolizing like, oh, to be a farmer, that sounds so nice. And probably like a lot of free time where people romanticizing these other trades and therefore they needed to have this because what threat did they offer? Like what did a potter like, I don't know, obviously, like a rich boy would never want to be a potter. Okay, I'll give you I'll give you my perspective. My you know? perspective is not to what do we read over and over again, that this text is to ward the young man away from these other professionals. Well, and it says, I quote, so I would have you love writing more than your own mother and have you recognize its beauty for it is greater than any other profession. There is none like it on earth. And so the point is to prove that it's the best profession ever. And here's what I think. I think that this is a means of allowing the cruel treatment of everybody over whom the scribe supervises, mm-hmm. makes rules, makes arbitrary decisions. Did you bring your tax in? Did you make enough pots? Where are my sandals? Every time there is such a decision, this text has effectively dehumanized all of the others such that the superior scribe and his ilk, anybody who else who is in his group, have the ideological 
high ground. Say that they put in the hard work, right? What do rich people always say? I worked hard for this. (laughs) That they put in the hard work to get this position. And thus they have the right, the moral right. This Mm -hmm. is a moralizing text to tell all of these other people how to do, when to do it, because they've made them dirty, stinky, unhuman in a way. Because notice how the text turns, the profession turns the person into something less than they were before. Mm -hmm. And the scribe is clean. He is above. He is not a part of all of these things. In my opinion, this is when you go into a police academy or you go into an army training, say we're in 1941 and we've got basic training or Vietnam and then everyone's off to Paris Island. What happens there? You dehumanize your enemy to such a degree that you can easily stick a bayonet into some image of a person in your training, hopefully so that you can do that in real life on the battlefield. You dehumanize enough so that you can make it, make these people expendable, exploitable, and less than human. And that, in my opinion, is what this text is doing. It's, it's maintaining and imposing a stricter separation between the haves and the have-nots. So I don't there's think no, you don't think there's, no. there's like em- building an empathy at all. It's that it's too. No. Yeah. It's the opposite of building mm-hmm. them. These people become stinky fish. And, mm-hmm. and notice how there's always a distrust. That's why I wanted you to read the merchant one. I understand how we can have superiority over a sandal maker and a potter covered with dirt and urine. Mm-hmm. Fine. It's easy to put those people in this text. The merchant is like, but what about this? Because the guy is going to get rich. He's going to have access to all kinds of wealthy elites, not just in Egypt, but elsewhere. And he's going to be able to make these connections that an elite might not be able to make. If you as a scribal elite, Egyptian old school elite, are able to differentiate yourself from that man and call him somehow unclean and not worthy, then you've enabled a distrust of this man who's dealing with baser trades of money and merc and just whatever merchants are trading back and forth, but you've lessened him in terms of social status. And think of something like, oh, I don't know, when Rockefeller is getting really rich and the way he's treated by the old Dutch elites of New York, or when you look at the English Industrial Revolution and read your Jane Austen or books that came on after this and what the people who were involved in trade, oh, a tradesman, a tradesman, mm-hmm. not a gentleman who yeah. lives, a gentleman would live off of the proceeds of his land, whereas a tradesman is there getting dirty inside of London. Or You see these disparaging remarks that separate. So even though the man may have more money than you. Yeah, the nouveau riche, yeah. Exactly. You've created a kind of, a, a means of, of creating the other. This is an othering text and it is nothing but that to create a certain social milieu that so, which people belong or don't. I think for, to further your point, after all this, the trades are gone through, the rest of the text is looking at the scribe, the son's position in regard to people above him. So it like starts with people that he's over, then mm-hmm. it ends with people that he's under and is like, don't walk too close to them, be respectful, do all these things to be a good underling. So it's literally telling you the hierarchy of Egyptian society in this one text. Yeah. Yeah. And 
you could then say, okay, if we're linking this to higher education like Harvard or like you've joined a Hollywood agent company, if you've ever seen the movie with Kevin Spacey swimming with sharks, that's old, but damn, is it good. But this idea where you've separated yourself from the others, you're part of this special elite group, and now you get to be hazed and treated like shit mm-hmm. so that you know your place among these different hierarchies. And then you work towards the corner office, right? Then within it, it's an apologism for the treatment of the scribes at the lower and mid-level who are trying to work Mm -hmm. against each other. And it's an attempt, arguably, to tamp down on competition within those scribal arenas of competition. But it's setting out some rules about how one should behave. But the fact that they're supposed to walk behind or speak in a certain way means that people are doing it. So it's like, you're the lowest of the elites, but oh, look, remember, you're above all these other people. So don't forget that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. This is a frighteningly patriarchal text mm-hmm. yeah. and it should be used as such. But I don't read that for the most part in the Egyptological literature. It's we don't like to take down our favorite people in that way, even though we, it's not a takedown. We live in the same system. It's not like the Egyptians are blameworthy because they lived in a patriarchy before we did. It just means that we can compare more with that similarity instead of trying to separate and say, oh, no, the Egyptians wouldn't have done this. It's different. It's a satire. It's not really functional. It's not really the social separator. Of course it is. Of course it is. And it's interesting, too, that the sources that we have preserved to us all are from the 18th and 19th dynasties, especially during most of them come from Hatshepsut T3. So when I feel like 18th dynasty is really at its at its height. Yeah, because what was happening then with Hatshepsut was read all the her new men that she was bringing in. Exactly. So as she's bringing in all of these men who will be loyal only to her and not to any larger elite group, they have to find a way to find entrance into this society. And so you have The scribes, the scribal class, if you want to use the word class or status group, pushing back maybe against Mm -hmm. new men infiltrating into their society. And then these new men then using this text to to create a, a mechanism forwards and into the scribal group so that they can take it over themselves. And the fact that you get this in the populism of Ramses II, when you also have another series of new men being appointed and nepotism taking over family members of Ramses and Ramses' relatives, the second that would be, then it makes more sense. What's the word when when people talk about a society where you get what you deserve and the work you put in? Meritocracy. Oh, thank you, my God. It's setting, it's beautiful text, setting up a meritocracy. You work hard and you'll get these things when the game is rigged from the beginning. We all know the game is rigged. But if you set up the ideology of the meritocracy, you work hard. There's nothing more beautiful than letters. You're better than all of these other people because of your hard work. And then vis-a-vis the other scribes, you set up that meritocracy. Then the system can replicate it Mm -hmm. again and again without any real threat from the bottom. And without any of the scribes becoming too goddamn empathetic to not be able to do their jobs of exploitation effectively. Any final thoughts about satire of the trades? Yeah, um, so you can find this online if you want to read a translation. It's a fun read. I find the 
metaphors used to describe all the dirty work is really fun to to read. Let me just read one section of the bricklayer. Let me tell you what it is like to be a bricklayer, the bitterness of the taste. He has to exist outside in the wind, building in his kilt, his robes a cord from the weaving house, stretching round to his back. His arms are destroyed by hard labor, mixed in with all his filth. He eats the bread with his fingers, though he can only wash them once. And he is dehumanized. He's disgusting. He's covered with shit and mud. And he has to just be dirty all the time. This isn't something like, oh my God, you want to be a prick. This text is warning the young boy about. It's telling the young boy that he is special and privileged if it's used as a school text. Mm -hmm. And for the teacher, it's reinforcing to him that yes, we are special and privileged. We are different. In the same way that rich people tell everyone today, you can't hurt me. I'm a jobs creator. How dare you? You destroy me. You destroy the entire economy. This is trickle down. Or like when you didn't eat your dinner as a kid and your parents would be like, they're starving kids wherever. Yeah, it's very propagandistic, but a fun read. It's in most compendiums of Egyptian literature. You can find it online. So have a look at that. Okay, our next question is from Marissa. And she asks, what did you enjoy most during your time away this summer? Oh, I got to visit Oxford and Cambridge this summer. Not that I haven't been before. I've been to both of these places, but I got to go again and without an agenda Mm -hmm. to see the museums and meet people and just be laid back. So that was really nice. Usually when I go, it's to attend a conference or for an important research or some research, something like that. This was just much more laid back. And, but really less associated with my travels and more associated with being home. I've enjoyed reading, which I get to do so seldom. And it's funny, Remy and I, my husband Remy and I were just talking yesterday about how we both started reading real books again. Mm. Because when you've gone through any sort of traumatic moment, I think it's hard to have the brain space to read long form. And I read a whole lot over the last seven years. I've had a lot, you guys know, there's been a lot of trauma and big changes and a lot of things going on in my life and in Remy's too. And it's hard to be thoughtful and sit and read like an actual book. Yeah. I enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. Obviously I do it for work, but it's, and I'll read like a whole um, fiery book, but to read something that's, and to have the attention to be able to read a book is certainly a privilege that I haven't had for a long time. And it's been really fun to, yeah. to go back to that. So that's what I've been enjoying the most. And I just wish I had another two or three months. Yeah, I know. It is nice. I've been delving into some old school romance, which has been fun. I love I know that. you love. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I don't know if I could just pick one thing. I think first seeing friends, I think was one of big things turns great to go there and work, but it's also a good time to see past UCLA students, but now close friends. So we had a little reunion there, got to go to Romania for the first time, which was also very fun. But on a super nerdy academic level, it was my first time in Rome, which being a classics undergrad, it was really fun just to see everything. I'm very much when you see something in person, I feel like it makes everything click and make so much more sense than when you look at a picture of it or just read about it or something like this. Oh, this is where this thing happened. I felt the same way about Egypt. Just 
spatially, it helps just understanding the workings of things. So yeah, just going to the forum and seeing Trajan's Market and we did a tour under the Vatican, which was really cool. And then we also got a tour of the Domus Aria, which was awesome because the frescoes were so well preserved down there. And of course, just like eating and living in Italy, I much prefer the lifestyle. I think I think anyone who's ever been to Europe, I think we all say that. So I was going through a bit of withdrawal, like I can't walk anywhere anymore and just have coffee and chill. But it also was a nice time to decompress and now it's back and ready to work on things and get back into the groove. So it's a good separation. But yeah, after traveling for a bit, it's you just want to get home and back in your own space and stuff like that. But and it was yeah. really hot. So it's nice to be back in LA where the temperature is nicer. And you came back for the hurricane. And we just, yeah, had our hurricane earthquake shenanigans. She welcomed us back. Yeah. Open yeah. arms. Okay, I think this is our last question, and then we can talk a bit about ice. But Noir or Noor eighty eight asks, I remember when Dr. Cooney said that the four incense on each corner that the Catholics do is an Egyptian thing. And I watched mm. a YouTube video where you explained the comparison between the resurrection of Osiris and Jesus. My question besides that is what else from Christianity is relate is Egyptian. I always thought the Pope's whole attire looked Egyptian, and I always wonder if the Holy Mother Mary is somehow really Isis, and the halo is the sun disk, the Christian cross, and Ankh, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, how Egyptian should we see Christianity? It reminds you that Christianity is from the ancient world, right? It's from Western Asia, so it's gonna have, it's going, it is the repository of Levantine, Egyptian, Mesopotamian traditions. So yeah, so how should we be thinking about these connections? Yeah, there's so much that comes from the ancient Egyptian world that finds its way into Christianity. And there are many Christian evangelicals, fundamentalists who discount this completely because Christianity from their perspective has to be invented out of whole cloth to count, which I think is a fallacy. I think that Things come out of other things and religions, new religions, new cults come out of a zeitgeist. They come out of a cultural context and they come out of millennia of conversation between different cultures. And when I know that the ancient Levant and ancient Egypt were in constant conversation culturally, linguistically, ideologically. And so it, it shouldn't be a strange thing that Christianity or the Jesus cult in its earliest years would then take and borrow or just feed, not even take. It's not like it's something like that's yours. Now I'm going to take it. Or just it was in the, the stew. This like is in their mind. This is how you create a ritual moment. This is how mm -hmm. you create a sacred space. And if you understand that incense can actually create a a sacred space within profanity, within the human dirty world. If you're able to use incense and make a sacred circle, it sounds like a witchcraft, but it's just magic. Like anything, mm -hmm. if you're able to use incense to make a sacred circle in which to have your magical spell, i.e. the Eucharist moment, the activation of the bread with the spirit, body and blood of Jesus Christ, then 
It makes sense. It's not stealing from paganism, in my opinion. It's using the religion in which one had already been inculcated and that was already mm -hmm. instilled in people. And so there, we're going to list off some things just off the tops of our heads. So yes, the use of incense mm -hmm. to create ritual, the materialization of, let's go to the Eucharist transformation and the steps that are involved, the invocation of the God, the material the necessary materials, you have to have bread and you have to have a fermented grain beverage, in this case, wine, not beer, though the Egyptians would often, the Egyptians would probably have used beer because that's what they grew there. And that you speak certain things over this bread and this beverage, and then you're able to turn it into something more magical that then has a power. And that if you read ancient Egyptian spells, you're going to see that kind of magical workings. So that's not far from ancient Egyptian magical practice. If you picked up your Robert Rittner magical, what's the name of his book? Magical Practice and Rites or something yeah. like that. Then you would see similar sorts of steps. And it may be upsetting for practicing Christians to understand the transformation of the host as a magical spell, but you only don't think of it as a magical spell because it's a, a transformation that you consider superior to other magical spells. But magic is just using incantation objects and place and action to create a cer certain circumstance that you will into existence. And that transformation of the host is no different. I was going to say Egypt was one of the earliest places to adopt Christianity too. So if you read early Coptic Christian texts, there's a really fun one that comes to mind that I remember reading about Bess, the Egyptian god Bess, being transformed more into a demon and popping up within this one month life story autobiography about Bess doing something and him having to go to an Egypt, old Egyptian temple and the Bess demon was scaring people and he had to go there, the monk, and get rid of the demon. So you see this melding with the ancient culture in which they were living with this new Christianity. And yeah, what else would they do but adopt the prior practices that they were already practicing, but keep doing it's the them? the same way that the Mexican cathedral is built upon oh, yeah. Templo Mayor. It's built um, on the Churches are on top of old temple. temples, on top of mm -hmm. old sacred sites, yeah. And just for some other examples, you could say that the virgin births, an ancient Egyptian origin story, because... The creator God, the sun God, or Osiris, they're both self-created and, and they place themselves into their female vessel. They don't need the woman oh. to create them. And you could say that that has a similar origin. You could look at the baby Horus, mm -hmm. the child God, and make comparisons to the Jesus child, the baby Jesus, and having these similar powers. And there's a gospel of Jesus written in Coptic Egyptian that has Jesus unaware of how to control his superpowers. Or maybe it's the gospel of Thomas. Some, someone shall have to look. But there, there are Coptic gospels where Jesus is unable to control his superpowers and accidentally kills people, which is an interesting way of understanding a divinity, a, an offspring of God himself, God with a big G, that who can't control his, who isn't aware of his own powers yet, can't really fully comprehend them himself until he matures in this human body, which is cool. 
And there's but there's been links between the hymn of the Aten with Psalm 104. Yeah. Um, which is in Christianity, that's going to go into the that's earlier of yeah. theism and Hebrew Bible. But I've argued that there are slim, tendentious links of connection between Akhenaten's monotheism and, yeah. and the monotheism in the Hebrew Bible. And why not? That 17-year reign left its mark and people saw what could potentially come of that kind of worship of the gods. It's interesting to see so many of these different connections. And they're pretty simple. They're not, and they're not anything that should be hugely off-putting. And I would also make the connection, which I did in that podcast that she's talking about, with Osiris, God of grain, mm-hmm. and Jesus, whose body can be put into bread. And that and like both being of them, reborn. they're reborn, and they're reborn in the spring, and they're reborn along with this grain cycle, the spring cycle, and they're meant to be consumed. We consume them body and soul and they feed us. And I think those two things are inextricably. They're one of the only two gods that die and become something else. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yes. Yeah. And there's more one could say. Jesus sitting on Mary's lap is very similar to the young Pharaoh sitting on Isis's lap. And that is the name for throne. And one, one and just the role of Isis, the role of Mary. Yeah. yeah. The divine feminine mm-hmm. that Protestant really did try and mm-hmm. to get rid of and did a good job of removing in favor of the purely masculine God with no divine feminine whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But and then if you grew up Catholic, like I did, all of the different saints with all mm-hmm. of their different symbolism and their different stories of what they stand for. This just us yeah, it works in a polytheistic way as well. Yes, it's the ancestor cult of the mm-hmm. Iker, the excellent, effective ancestor. But yeah. it's also just understanding divine presence in specific ways. This is the God for this particular thing. This is the God mm-hmm. for that particular thing. And no, Catholicism doesn't call saints gods, but we treat them ritually as if they are. We pray to them ritually as if they are. As so being it's, more effective sometimes for certain Yes, circumstances. And who am I to talk to God? Mm-hmm. Where I can, whereas I can go. He's busy. To, yeah, I'll go to this more specific. But my dog is sick, so I'm going to talk to Saint Francis, mm-hmm. and that's going to get me a whole lot more than if I talk to God with the big G. So it's, yeah. it is a way of connecting. And there, there's so much one could say that that is it's not heretical, but mm-hmm. it is heretical if you're looking at things in a hard pagan creative concept. Yeah, and a lot of it's not solely Egyptian too. It's more of like a Mediterranean, I feel like, North Africa, Northwest Asian things. Yeah, very interesting to see the impact of earlier religions on our current Abrahamic faiths, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay, that wraps up our Patreon questions. So now we'll pivot for a bit about ICE. One, can you tell our listeners what ICE is? Why is it important? And then, yeah, give us a little update. So how was it? What went down? Give it your overall vibe. So ICE is the International Conference of Egyptologists. It happens every four years. And the last time we had an ICE was in Cairo four years ago. And I think before that, it was, I think we had, the pandemic interrupted it. And I think it was six years that when we met in Florence 
And before that, it was in Rhodes in Greece. And before that, it was in Grenoble in France. I think I have it right. And it's crazy. I've been at all of those. Grenoble was my first ice. And it's incredibly overwhelming. You're there with over a thousand Egypt experts and Nubia experts. ICE has found a way to subsume Nubiology, which Uh is a discussion that we can have. And it's anybody interested in ancient Egypt in any way, shape, or form, from a materialist perspective to a text perspective, to an art historical perspective, to a historical perspective, and scientific perspectives in there as well. There, there's a group of conservators. There, are a group, there was a group of material culture specialists who look at environment. So there's everything you can possibly imagine. There are, there, there are a group of Egyptologists who call themselves papyrologists who specialize in demotic and Greek. And their conference happened two weeks after ICE. And so many of the specialists of the Greco-Roman Egyptian world were not present at this mm-hmm. conference because you can't be away for three weeks yeah. and or go back and forth. You choose unless, one. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're close. Has ICE ever been in the States? I don't know. You'd have that's, to it's always been in Europe or it Egypt. Makes sense. Or, it makes which, sense. We should have to travel because, and this year was in Leiden in the Netherlands, and it's as central a location as you can possibly mm-hmm. get. Your four hours flight from Egypt, you have a long train ride from four, five, seven hours from other places, mm-hmm. or a flight from Eastern Europe, your flight from Britain. The Americans, the Australians, the Japanese, the South Africans, they're going to have to travel. Yeah. And that's just, that's yeah. just the way it is. I think it will continue to be in Europe or Egypt for some time. Yeah. Because, you know, how it's incredibly expensive to get all the way to New York. It's like when we have RC, the American Research Center in Egypt, it's mostly the most most part Americans because it's in the States and it's harder for other people to come to. (laughs) And they try to organize it. So I think two out of three years, it's East Coast. Yep. We move. It'll be East Coast, Central and Central. West Coast. And then West Coast. One out of three times, that kind of thing. Geography and cost are everything. Mm. This conference I heard from people was more expensive than many would have liked. Leiden's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to afford it. I have the privilege to be able to afford that. And so I'm lucky in that regard. I'm not a grad student anymore. And it didn't set me back in the same way that I know it set some other people back. I think it was harder for people to get to this conference. I didn't go. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine five papers happening simultaneously back to back, four of them happening in one building mm-hmm. and then, and sometimes six back mm-hmm. to, and then another two or three happening in another building. And there's a lot of toing and froing and the halls that we were in were great. It was just hard to get in and out of. So I would usually settle on a particular panel or, yes. or series of talks and stay there. But it was giving papers is you go in, you listen to somebody's read paper. They're usually reading their paper. There's usually a PowerPoint. I don't think I saw any papers that were not accompanied by a PowerPoint. Everybody has God. something visual there as well. It's a prop too. It's something to, yeah. that, that keeps us safe. Going in without a PowerPoint would be like, oh my God, would they going to look at me the whole time? I w- better be entertaining. Exactly. And some papers are better than others. Some papers show more 
preparation than others. Some paper are more in it, papers are more innovative than others. It's always the way at any conference yeah. and that's fine. But this ice did have a real vibe. Mm-hmm. It had a very interesting vibe. And that vibe or what was in the Tell air. Tell us more. Yeah. Was, there was a real polarization in the mm-hmm. air. Do you and, think post-Egypt Leiden controversy with the exhibit, do you think that was part of? Oh, that was it. That the was vibe. what kicked it off. So there's a couple of things, but let's start with that part of the vibe. And that was the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities rejecting the creation of an exhibition by Leiden Rijksmuseum, the Rijksmuseum von Oudheden in mm. Leiden, so the Museum of Antiquities. They put on an exhibition that was about Black diaspora musicians, modern musicians who used ancient Egypt yeah. as influence. inspiration. Yeah. Influence, inspiration in some way. And so you had images of Louis Armstrong in front of the pyramids playing his trumpet. And you could see that this Black American brought to the United States his ancestors enslaved, connected himself, his music, his background to Africa. And saw Egypt as one of the most obvious places to connect to. And so you would see that kind of example again and again and just see those images and album covers. And from what I can tell is the controversy is against Afrocentrism. Afrocentrism being understood by the modern Egyptian nationalist state as something that is trying to take its culture and claim it for themselves and say that this is not ancient Egyptian culture or that the modern Egyptians have no connection to ancient Egypt and to instead claim it on behalf of others. And Afrocentrism, as I understand the debate now, is very much between Egyptians of a more nationalist bent and then Africans who are from more southerly regions and Africans who have a darker skin tone. So an understanding of who was Black and who was not, with the understanding that only Americans or mostly Americans radically reclaim that word. Egyptians do not consider the word Black to be positive or radically reclaimed in any way, and instead prefer to to distance themselves from it. But it became very much about skin color, location, Blackness, and who's allowed to have mm-hmm. access to Egypt. To summarize, the Egyptian government or people within the Egyptian government, the Antiquities Department, got wind of this exhibition. They didn't see it. They got wind of it and didn't approve of the messaging, support the messaging that Leiden was trying to do. And what was their retribution? There were some. There were a number of things that were done to show their displeasure. And one of them was to move a lecture mm. by Mamdouhel Damati from the Rijksmuseum mm. to another location because Egyptian scholars, not all, but many, most, refused to attend any museum functions, go into the museum, be a part of anything associated with the museum. And there were also certain panels and papers that, that were purposefully not attended as well. So you could call it a boycott, you could call it many things. And it was also clearly communicated that if you don't, if you engage in what the Egyptians consider Afrocentrism, 
then you will not get access to resources by the Yeah, Egyptians. so even if an Egyptian scholar perhaps disagreed with that sentiment, they've probably felt between a rock and a hard place with how to deal with it. Yeah, there was a clear message. And the message is, it's an interesting thing because Afrocentrism is, in my opinion, and I've made this point on Twitter before, that Afrocentrism is the CRT of the right wing in the United States. Yeah. If you look at critical race theory, it is simply saying that racism is structural yeah. and exists within our banking system, within our school systems, within all of these different aspects of our lives. And that if you don't accept that it's there baked into all of our systems, that you or I are as white women are benefiting from that racism, then you don't understand how racism actually functions. That's all mm -hmm. the critical race theory suggests. Yeah. But critical race theory, particularly in the last three, four years, has been held up as this boogeyman of, oh my God, they're making white children feel ashamed of their history yes. and heritage and this needs to be smashed and destroyed and all of these things. And Afrocentrism is, Afrocentrism, I have issues with Afrocentrism in the old school, 70s, 80s, way of people claiming ancient Egypt and saying that its origins are of a certain more southerly origin just to claim it in a patriarchal way. And, but Afrocentrism has another side to it. It's a complicated field. So there are the more militant Afrocentrists who say that Egypt was created and formed by Black people, and it says it outright. But Afrocentrism is also just putting Africa at the central center of the debate, the center of the discussion, that we should be discussing Africa as much as we discuss the Mediterranean, if not more, as much as we discuss West Asia, Egyptian connections. If not well, more. I think so much of this, too, is contextualized within early Egyptology, where many Egyptologists from a white Western background were trying to prove that the Egyptians were white and Caucasian, whatever you want to say. Yeah. And so knowing that was going on and Africa was being totally left out of the equation and it's still in oftentimes like that, right? Egypt has its own section in a museum outside of Africa and Africa is like in the basement or something. But putting Egypt back into Africa and its connections within the larger continent, that's what I think more is where it's going today. And especially in regards to the exhibition where it's just talking about the influence of ancient Egypt on modern black music. I don't, it's, I don't see any claims really being made in a patriarchal way that we were that. No, there was no 1970s, 80s claim of the Arab invasion brought in different mm -hmm. full and thus ancient Egypt was all black African. There was nothing like that in this exhibition. It was simply Black diasporic communities yeah. connecting with Egypt. As you say, Egypt has, in our modern day, in its cultural place in our world, has ridden the coattails of Greco-Roman studies, Mediterranean studies, and ancient Near Eastern studies, Hebrew Bible studies, local archaeology. And I'm using that in, with the scare quotes that it needs. And Egypt has indeed been separated and put into that separate category, whereas, as you say, all of those other African subjects are peeled off, put in the basement and made less than. And so it would 
completely makes sense for somebody from an African origin, whether it's West Africa brought over, whose ancestors were brought over as enslaved people by force. If that person wants to connect with Africa, Egypt is the most visible, the most powerful, the most obvious in their view from the perspective of cultural knowledge and museums and all these things that we've created. But modern Egyptian nationalism, and I'm saying that very clearly, it's not all Egyptians who feel this way, but modern Egyptian nationalism rejects this association or claim or interest, even interest with both hands, that this, yeah. this cannot be accepted. So that you and I, or with backgrounds from Northern Europe, Northwestern Europe, can come in and study Egypt and that's not a problem. Yep. We won't be accused of cultural appropriation, though no one has any issue with the West and like its connection to like Rome or Greece when I'm not Italian or Greek or anywhere even close to it. But people are okay with white people making those connections to parts of Europe that they have no connection to. So why can't it be the same for other continents, groups of people? And I agree with this, but we're dealing with two different agendas and I'll lay them out. And then After maybe it'll make more sense. Colonization. Yeah. And maybe it'll make more sense for our listeners. So think of the American Western European agenda of understanding that it has colonized, it has raped and pillaged and exploited, and it now has many populations in its borders who identify with places that were colonized, that were treated less than, who were enslaved, who were exterminated in the American sense of indigenous people and genocide. And there are some people in Western Europe, the United States, and maybe Eastern Europe too, though you don't have the same colonization and many of the same issues. You, you find populations trying to correct these inequities and trying to talk more about Blackness as a mm -hmm. radically reclaimed positive word, trying to discuss indigeneity in a different way than it's been discussed in the Denver Museum of Natural History, for example, in being much more sensitive mm -hmm. to the display of human remains, in highlighting things that had been easily passed over before. This is something that the left-wing intellectuals in certain places are trying to highlight. And in the United States in particular, with the murder of George Floyd, people are, and so many other Black men and women and children, in police custody and the exposure of so many inequities, structural and, and not, within our past, that people are trying to do something to correct it. We're not doing it right. We're not doing it fast enough. We're not doing it in a way that is satisfactory to fix things in the society. One could argue less than that, yeah. but people are trying. And it is also now fashionable, I would mm -hmm. say, for people to virtue signal and say, mm -hmm. look it, I care about this and I'm going to talk about this and this will be my new exhibition. Some people are virtue signaling, some institutions are doing it well, some people are doing yeah. it not well. Everyone right? with their Fine. DAI task force. Exactly. So we're all talking about diversity, inclusion, and equity. Some mm -hmm. people are walking the walk and some people are just talking like, oh yeah, we're the doing talk. it and they're not really doing shit. Yeah. So that's where one agenda item is. And then on the other side, if you look at Egypt or if you separate that out, and no, Sudan was not present. Sudan is going through a massive cataclysm of, mm -hmm. of civil war and arguably new colonial infiltration 
by Wagner Group Russians, and it's complicated. But Sudan, while it wasn't present, Sudan also has a nascent nationalism. Egypt, modern Egypt, has a new nationalism. And and Ethiopia is, though it's not mm-hmm. a part of this conference in any way, has a new nationalism. And meanwhile, you have all three of these nation states with a dam on the River Nile, creating hydroelectric power and creating massive lakes behind where their dam is such that they can release water in a controlled flow. And there is a lot of disconcerted, there are a lot of disconcerted looks from Egypt for their son, mm-hmm. saying, how can you take our water? And there is an understanding that the dam has already caused extraordinary damage in Egypt, but it's a necessary evil and we have to do it. Building two more of them, one in Sudan and one in Ethiopia, is doing more damage, more s- similar damage. And that damage is heading downstream to <laughs> Egypt rather than upstream. And so There is, for whatever reason, whether that reason is water or power, hydroelectric power or political power, there is not a happy, cuddly, cozy relationship among the nation states of Northeast Africa. And in fact, it is the opposite. And it is manifesting itself in all kinds of ways. And then you have the leavings of a white colonialism occupation in Egypt that has superiorized the whiteness in Egypt such that there is a colorism in this place that is visible for any who care to admit it. Though I know you and I have heard many people say there is no racism in Egypt. This is an American problem. There's no racism in Sudan. This is an American problem. And it's not hard to see this in a place like Cairo, where you see on a billboard a white woman Hmm. with her white children getting her 6th of October villa, among other white people. And you can see this reified around you in Egyptian society. And in as all of us in this time period of great climate change and nation state change and war are dealing with scarcity-based mindsets and fear-based mindsets, everyone is thinking, what is that person going to take from me? And so we're dealing with two very different agendas. One is the Egyptian nationalist agenda that wants to claim its primacy as the originator of an extraordinary ancient civilization, something it should be able to do and does. But there is also an extraordinarily new competition. And by new, I'm saying, what, five to 10 years new competition with those nation states that exist further to the south. And the wars have only exacerbated this because we have wars in both Sudan and Ethiopia, and who knows what's going to happen with Chad, but people moving over the borders in whatever way that they can. And you have migrants, you have, you already have too many people in Egypt, arguably, working with scarcer resources, Mm -hmm. you have extreme social inequality, just like you have here in the United States. And it's, it creates for a lot of consternation about What is Egypt? What does it mean to be Egyptian? Where are my people? Where are my things? And none of these things are openly expressed at this ICE conference. Remember, we're talking about a conference of ancient history and civilization and archaeology, right? This is the feel. This is the vibe as you enter into this, that there is a lot of anger from many Egyptians over what the white people are imposing upon them. And who am I to say that 
you can't have this anger that you can't claim your own things. These are your things. This is your antiquity. Yeah. And you can do with it what you will. And I just saw a presentation about the gem in which it was stated that this is the first time that Egyptian objects have been displayed by Egyptians for themselves, by themselves, with their own perspectives. And that's to be lauded. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. But that doesn't mean that politics aren't going to come into play. Egyptian scholars boycotted even going to Leiden for ice. Did you feel like that was happening or that it was no. disco-separate enough from no. the university, from the museum? I think that people came, made speeches, and then maybe went away again sooner than they would have otherwise. It is possible that some people decided not to come. It is possible. Mm-hmm. The Egyptian presence was strong. And the Egyptian presence from the Ministry of Antiquities was strong. And that's, that, that's interesting. There were some notable absences. And it's possible that that m- may be owing to this. I, it's likely. But there were papers given and there was a strong presence of Egyptians at this conference discussing their own national patrimony in in their own way. I did see they had the abstracts and everything in Arabic and that Olaf Kaper spoke in Arabic, too, at the beginning. That's something to be appreciated as well. Yeah. In Cairo, we had that at the opening session. The opening session was purely in Arabic. And then there was a translator and had headphones. Which is right and fair and, yeah. and proper. It's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. There were some papers given in Arabic, but most Egyptian scholars, just like most German scholars or most French scholars, decided to give their papers in English because this is the lingua franca of the world Academia. of scholar yeah. of scholarly discourse. It's just what is easier. It's not fair for people like you and me that who grow up yeah. with this with this ability to speak English as a native language, but it also means that we're lacking other languages yes. that Europeans have, and we have to work harder to get them, or that Egyptians have. The ability mm-hmm. to speak Arabic and write Arabic and English is something that I think we all wish yeah. we could do, but it takes years and years to, and colonial occupation to demand skills from other people. Yeah. So that that vibe was strong. And I have many Egyptian colleagues with whom I hang out on a regular basis, and I talked about these things quite openly, and it was something surmountable. Mm-hmm. It's there but it is surmountable. And yeah, I think that many felt it was an overreaction. Many felt it was its own kind of virtue signaling that had to be shown. And many felt... Because the repercussion of this was that they withdrew... um, Talk about that, yeah. So in Saqqara, the concession for Saqqara, for part of Saqqara was being run by a joint mission from the Leiden Museum and Musee Egizio di Torino. And the repercussion of this exhibit was that the Leiden team was not, was deleted off the concession. So they couldn't, they weren't allowed to come dig anymore in the future. And yeah. Torino now has to, the Musee Egizio has to pick up, has to run it solely. But the Leiden members weren't, were aren't allowed to go excavate again. It's interesting to see that in the same way that in the United States we have a cancel culture, that you have a similar cancel culture working yeah. itself out. And what's interesting I, I, too is that um, Suleiman yeah. from the from Leiden is 
Egyptian. Yeah. So it's also, that's very quizzical to me is so. So you're pointing out that the curator who created yes. this music of, of Black diaspora musicians, artists, is Egyptian. Oh. And it, I think it was as surprising to him as anybody else. But again, I would put it at two different agendas that just don't, they're not working in tandem with one another and they're serving different different leaders and, and different cast groups mm -hmm. in different places. And I think that's where you have to look for this. The pushback was very hard, very strong. Yes. It made like all the newspapers too, like even non-Egyptological circles. And yet at ICE, it was whispered about, but not mm -hmm. openly discussed. Well, it, it's never it's openly discussed. rather interesting that happened. And then ICE was pretty soon after the little, ugh, yeah, waiting for something awkward to happen, I'm sure. Yeah. It's like any political situation. It was interesting to see people going about their normal business and not talking about yeah. the obvious thing. Yeah. And that was really, it was really <laughs> interesting to me. So I, I noticed that. Yeah, Egyptology is always political. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of mm -hmm. course. And I also noted, so if there's that vibe. Yeah. Um, what else? I noticed at the same time, and I think this is, what we've just discussed is normal. Everywhere. It's everywhere right now. There are these polarized divides generationally, polarized divides politically. And you saw the same thing at this conference. And just people having different conversations with different people with different agendas about who gets to get ahead in the world? What do you own? What do you publish? Mm -hmm. Different perspectives, whether you were old or young, different perspectives on whether you were North African or European, different perspectives on whether you were Eastern European or Western Europe, mm -hmm. different perspectives on whether you were American or, or European. It, it was just but think of the worlds we all exist in. We all see the polarized po politics in every single place that people probably listen to this podcast. I can't imagine that there is one place where people are like, everything's fine here. There's no hard, there's no man's rights groups. There's no hard mm -hmm. religious fundamentalism. There's no, it's everywhere. And, and all of this gets brought into the scholarship as well, whether or not it's acknowledged. So what right. topics are hot for people to talk about and publish on and present on and how things are looked at now, given our climate versus 20 years ago. And yeah, you can see it reflected back. So I'll discuss one particular thing that happened to me that I found very telling. So I'm having a conversation with Claire Mallison and another colleague. And we're talking about women in ancient Egypt and how I had heard a number of papers where people were saying, oh, it's so horrible that we don't let women be powerful in the ancient world anymore, that we have to take their power away. And I was saying how annoyed I was that people are imposing what they want to have happened in the ancient world what they want to happen in the modern world on the ancient world in that they, they make these women more powerful than they were. And I'm not saying women didn't have power in the household. I'm not saying Hatshepsut wasn't a female king. And I've written a whole book on this called When Women Ruled the World. But I think they're still working within patriarchal systems. And so we're having this conversation. 
and I get animated. Mm-hmm. Hair's getting animated. And this woman walks up to me and she says, you need to be careful with what you're saying. I just study people. I don't study different subsets of people. So I was, I'll give my interpretation of that. It was pretty much an all lives matter banner being thrown in my face. Oh, you want to separate people up into black people and white people and indigenous people, or you want to separate people up into women and men. We just, I just look at people. (laughs) I was told. And so as if there's no difference and as if there's no need for a corrective, right? And then she told me, you need to be careful. I grew up in the Eastern Bloc and Marxism is something that you don't want to dabble with. It's hurt us very badly, something like that. And I'm paraphrasing badly. I don't remember exactly what she said. And I'll give my little interpretation of that. I'm like, first of all, feminism is not Marxism. <laughs> yeah. And understanding that women are cogs in the wheel, particularly elite women are doing the service of the patriarchy is not necessarily a Marxist perspective. That's fine. I'll use cultural Marxism in my work and see no problem with it. But, and then she said, they want you to think this way. They want you to make a big fuss out of this. And I said, who's they? Because at this point, I'm like, who are you? Yeah. And what's going on? And, and, and we had a short discussion with this woman and then she moved along her way. But there was a palpable energy and divide uh-huh. between those people who felt history needs to be written with the modern zeitgeist in mind and that there is no such thing as a political history. And that all history is a fiction, either written by the winners or a fiction written from your own, or even if you're trying to get it as correct as you possibly can, you're still writing it from your own zeitgeist, your own cultural milieu. I was just reading a paper today about Akhenaten written in the 40s, and it was all about the genius and the great man, Mm -hmm. men this and men that, and all about Protestantism, like just lurking in the paper. And, And I was told very specifically to my face and with regards to my own work of the good kings or when women ruled the world, these books that I write that connects modern and ancient quite explicitly. I was told that this was wrong and that there is no way to write history with any sort of modern perspective. And and I find it shocking that people don't actually see how anything that they write, even if they consider it as a a political and truthy with a capital T history as possible, will still be conditioned and bent towards yeah. their own cultural beliefs and understanding. And the more we call out the connections and call out where we're coming from, then the easier it is to extricate the one from the other. Yeah. But so th- that's my apologism for or my explanation for that. But it was very interesting to see so much anger, mm-hmm. anger. I've been to ISIS before and people get angry over the goddamn Sejim F and whether or not there's yeah. tense. <laughs> that kind of thing will drive people mad. But to... And or chronology, and they'll stand mm-hmm. and they'll freak out about chronology. But people were angry about the very nature of what our profession is, the very nature of what writing history and working with the past does. And to do so in a cultural milieu in which nationalism is rising and the use of antiquity to support that pure ideological message of that nationalism mm-hmm. is being constructed. I found it very interesting to see that divide. And that divide wasn't just Eastern European versus Western European, though sometimes I did see it occurring in that way. But in one panel, one of my greatest critics was an older man from Holland. 
saying that no history should be written with the modern perspective in mind. Absolutely not. These two things don't belong together at all. And we must absolutely separate them. So it's not Eastern Europe versus Western Europe. It mm-hmm. could, there could be a generational divide there, but an absolute refusal to admit that the way we write, if I picked up a Cherney article in a Cambridge history of ancient Egypt, that I wouldn't get a, a 1970s perspective of uh-huh. scarcity based commodity mindset or whatever. Of course, you're going to get that that feel of when it was written, that yeah. 80s Egyptology has a much more freewheeling Reagan yeah. tone to it, the more depressing 2000s Egyptology. There's all kinds of ways you yeah. can talk about it. You can this. read it into it. You can. and But there was a refusal to touch it, a There's refusal trends, to discuss yeah. it. And that hmm. was super interesting. And to just be having a conversation to have someone butt in and tell you to not be a goddamn dirty Marxist, you pinko commie, was what he said exactly. But And so that was... I get from an Eastern European perspective, there's a lot of trauma and but, yeah, personal... Yeah, but also remember that certain places in Eastern Europe have their own upheavals and their own oh. authoritarian regimes that have removed the intellectuals and replaced them with loyalists. Mm-hmm. And those loyalists are saying what they need to say in the same way that Florida public schools are replacing their textbooks mm-hmm. saying what they need to say, that slavery gave good job skills, that it's the same kind of rewriting of the past to suit the agendas of the winners. And yeah. history is safe. And I've never felt it so palpable a conference before and the discussions and Q&A felt the undertone of it in so many different questions being asked. I feel like there's moments when you learn like archaeological theory and stuff like there's key moments where there's like paradigm shifts right between like processual to post-processual and all these things and so maybe we're in one of those times where there's going to be a big paradigm shift of how history is written, how do we understand history, how is it used, and maybe a new camp or... Yeah, there's those, there's that theory, but I think we're in... And we're in the practice of it. I'll put it much more blatantly and much more openly in the same way that, that Mussolini used ancient Roman buildings and tropes and used mm-hmm. crusader buildings on the island of Rhodes to create a pure and unapologetic grasp of power using the past that nation states and nascent nationalism and authoritarianism around the world is doing the same. And when that happens, then you have, this always happens, the intellectuals, who, however you define them, are like, but wait, this mm-hmm. is, and that's this. And then the story is rewritten and a new, clean, whitewashed history oh. is spun. And not that there is any pure history, but we can do our best and we can try to be critical. And the amount of apologism I find happening everywhere in Egyptology in particular, the Pharaoh worship that I see and the worship of the golden mask and the worship mm-hmm. of these things is uh, is pretty extraordinary. And it's I can say it's disconcerting and it's chilling and blah, 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 but it's just normal. Yeah. It's just what people do. And there's never, the, if people in the United States are going to say that our work is irrelevant and like West Virginia a University, we should disband mm-hmm. departments, all, all languages, <laughs> all math, all, all of these things that have no real purpose. I'll tell you that history has never been more relevant and more important 
to be told by from as many different perspectives as possible, which with as much lively discussion about what happened and why it matters, mm-hmm. rather than shutting down that discussion in favor of a modern authoritarian yeah. agenda. It's it was super interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. I did point out at one panel the bravery of Klaus Uramann in his article, Pharaoh's New Clothes. And I it's an open source article. All you have to do is Google Klaus, C-L-A-U-S, Jurman, J-U-R-M-A-N, and put in Pharaoh's New Clothes. You will find this article for free. And it is one of the bravest pieces that I've read in some time. I didn't see him at this conference. I don't know if he was there, but it was interesting that after I said that, people came up to me and would whisper, yes, you're right. That article was important, but it wasn't something that people were openly willing to say lest they lose their assets or right. their access. I feel like and people are all very scared, mm-hmm. just in general, yeah, to share their opinions on things, maybe strong opinions on things, just in general. Like you're always afraid of being attacked on Twitter or Facebook at a conference. So it's just like easier just to stay quiet or talk quiet. behind the scenes or something like this that everyone's it's afraid crazy person coming at them. No, it's true. It's why I moved all of my opinions to this medium, mm-hmm. to a podcast, to Substack, to a place that is a safer space where you're less shareable and cancelable and yeah. sad that threadable. It's sad that's infiltrated even academic spheres where... Especially academic. You want, that, you want that. That's, yeah, you want yeah. that kind of conversation going on and it shouldn't be threatening and no one should be scared to have share their... Like normal opinions? No, everyone is very scared. And for me to say these things, and I'm not saying something that nobody knows, but this kind of discussion is different from the hearty discussions we used to have in the past. And it creates a different kind of scholarship. And I'll tell you what I mean. In the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, you had scholarship from people like John Baines, Jan Asman, who were and many others, right? But dealing with big ideas, big topics, how do we not just categorize or catalog or understand bits of information, but how do we deal with larger ideas of what it means to be human and to connect with antiquity? And much of what they have written can be criticized and, but not canceled, but no one is doing that now. Uh-huh. Entered into an Egyptology of details, of we, mm-hmm. of non-transcendence, of crawling around, collecting things and saying, I have published these things and I have connected this thing to that thing and this, but larger ideas and making any sort of a larger point is easily cancelable and is considered in, in many ways in these conferences, a reprehensible and problematic. I feel like you can um, only do say. it if you're really well-established, a junior scholar would never, right? Like you would just instantly get picked apart and torn down. Like someone notable like yourself or something, you can do this. You'll still have critics, but I feel like you have more standing and... I I have a privilege and a safety mm-hmm. UCLA position to be sure, but there are others who have privilege and safety... That don't do it. ...who won't mm-hmm. speak up. And I'm not saying speak up and say, oh, this is wrong and this is right. Just but share just big, ideas. big ideas. Yeah. Just share big ideas. And I've seen young scholars be canceled for sharing big ideas, indeed. Mm-hmm. And 
it's it's created a certain kind of discipline like, that I would never do that. <laughs> he went on like I looked at this little thing and I made this yeah. tiny little contribution. And then everyone's like, hey, you're like, cool. You also find yourself in an American intellectualism mm-hmm. that still does reward these larger ideas. But yeah. I can't tell you how many younger American scholars I've said, you you can have your big ideas here. But when you go to mm-hmm. this conference, this larger conference, you need to keep it. Yeah, there's different places for yeah, it. You need to keep it to the mm-hmm. weeds and argue within the weeds. And it's interesting. That's how the field is perceived. There will be a reaction to it. There always is. But and it's not that there's no one talking big ideas. There are. And I'm not going to mention them all here, but it's it's something that is palpable and that I notice. And I'm not trying to set myself up as some kind of goddamn savior. Oh, my God, I'm the only one doing it by no means. It's just a trend. Yeah, it's a trend. And I think people also see how my work can be treated by scholars and denigrated by fellow scholars and are thus afraid to do the same. And for some stupid reason, I'll keep on doing it. And it's not like it makes me beloved. It, it just, it's just because I can't shut the fuck up. So that's my main, that's my main problem. But like, I have to say though, the, what are the books that people enjoy reading? Like actual people? It's those types of books. No one wants to read a book about every catalog of statuary from whatever. And oh, I found the head over at this museum. People like reading books with the big ideas, people connecting big different types of data and stuff. Those are the books that people actually read. And that's like what I grew up reading and what got me into ancient history and stuff. And I'm sure that's what a lot of our listeners read. And we academics forget who actually, what's the purpose if no one's reading what you're producing? And just to end this with a larger discussion that's happening within Europe, but Mm -hmm. with Egyptian things, and that would be Nicholas Reeves' work on the tomb behind the tomb and how few Egyptologists will openly entertain the idea of something new, something unexpected, something that's using very carefully reasoned evidence. And people will throw it away with both hands because it is so much safer to be a part too of hot. the group. Yeah. It's too hot. It's safer to be a part of the group that sneers mm-hmm. and cancels than it is to be brave and step forward and say, oh my God, what if this is the case? And very few people are like, you know, what? Like, if it is. And we need more of that kind of thinking, obviously, but now is not the time in yeah. some ways. Or find different formats, uh, like this type of format or yeah. Substack or something like this. These yeah. are places that are safer maybe to yeah. think through these ideas first. Yeah. No, it's totally true. It was an interesting conference. I gave a paper on the last day about the 20th dynasty reuse and recycling, the rampant recycling mm-hmm. in the tombs in the Valley of the Kings and the movement of certain kings' bodies to the cache with the high priest Mm -hmm. of Amen, who generationally were doing this recycling. And I was attacked at the end of my paper by somebody who said, I think you have it all wrong. I don't understand. And it was a generational thing. It was super Mm. interesting to see someone saying, how dare you accuse the high priest of Amen of recycling in the Valley of the Kings? And tearing apart their understanding of the whole situation. Yeah. And they rewrap those bodies. And I'm like, yeah, but somebody had to steal the jewelry. And why did they have to rewrap the bodies? Not just a bunch of thieves in the middle of the Uh night. Yeah. I don't know of a bunch of thieves in the middle of the night that can. And God. Yeah. his mummy from three nesting stone sarcophagi. You need hundreds of Mm -hmm. to be able to pull that off. Oh, they didn't think it was the priests that were doing it. So I'm like, I'm just pushing against this being a dead of night to robbery affair and pointing more towards the recycling of the treasures in the Valley of the Kings, mm-hmm. even top down. Affair. And then a younger scholar, a younger colleague 
Henning Fonsmeyer said, oh, yeah, no, I totally agree. And have you thought about Colin Wasa mm-hmm. doing similar mm-hmm. things as what we call the world's first archaeologist, yep, but he's yep, actually yep. trying to create a connection with the past. And in a way, it's exactly what everyone was doing at this conference. Everyone's yeah, trying we do. to create. <laughs> it's what we're all doing. We're all trying to create a connection with the past to create our own power in a patriarchal society. And it's it's just really interesting to see how we pretend it, that patriarchal society doesn't exist. So, yep. Just got to see the Barbie movie and everything makes sense. You know, I still haven't. I still haven't. I mean, it, someday I'm going to have to probably to wait for it to come out. Because then you can have a podcast episode about it. I can't so good. Wait. I just want to be like for women in power for your class, just see Barbie movie. Yeah. And then that's it. It'll solve everything. It solves everything. <laughs> Thank you. This was really fun. I hope everyone enjoyed the Q&A for the month and also the little debrief from ICE. We all can't get to these conferences everywhere. And so it's cool to see what's what's happening and get the lowdown. There were some kick-ass papers. It was, and it yeah, was you can really go great. online and see the program and read through the abstracts if you're interested. If you, are, and, oh, you, can only, you can go online and read the abstracts, but yeah. the, you can only see the papers now. If you'd pay format, if you were a part of the conference. So I am able to do this. But there will be conference proceedings in many years. There will be a publication at some point. But you can have, yeah, have a look at see at least what was presented on generally. Yeah. Great. Thank you. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, baby. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support. And please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms. So subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.